Welcome to our first Doctors for Change podcast. Oh, I'm so excited. We're pleased to be able to share more about who we are and what we do. More importantly, we can't wait to get into serious discussions about health and all of the issues that impact health in our community. Before we get into that, though, I'll start by introducing Doctors for Change, or DFC as we like to say. I'll share a little bit about myself and our plans for this podcast series. Then I'll introduce our first guest for this week. He is going to talk about his experience with DFC and share more about why public health and preventative care is important. We'll wrap up with some tips and then give you a preview into our next few episodes. I know you can't wait, so here we go. Let me start by introducing myself. I'm Ariana Quinones, the Executive Director at Doctors for Change. As we go through this podcast series, you'll be hearing more from me, as well as many of our members and distinguished guests. I am not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV, but I do have a passion for public health and making a difference in the world, and that is why I got involved with this organization. So who are we and what do we do? Well, Doctors for Change is a membership organization that champions health for all Houstonians and Texans through research, education, collaboration, and advocacy. Our vision is that we create a city and state where communities have all of the resources they need to ensure health for everyone. We started as an organization officially in 2006, and a little bit before that was when a group of incredibly distinguished and passionate doctors and medical students got together around a kitchen table to discuss all of the barriers their patients faced when trying to access quality health care. They decided to establish the organization because they felt that healthcare providers have a unique ability and a responsibility to advocate in partnership with their patients for improvements to the healthcare system. There are a lot of social service organizations out in the community that address issues like food insecurity, access to care, as well as many of the other issues that our communities face these days. But very few of these organizations have been able to bring a medical provider into the public health and policy arena. This is what makes DFC unique. We serve as an educational resource and a forum in which healthcare providers, students, and community members can advocate locally and statewide. Now maybe you're asking, all right, so this organization exists, but why get into the podcast space? Well, we represent nearly 2,000 people in and around the city of Houston that work in the healthcare space. And everyone has a very unique voice and something important to bring to the table. We also acknowledge that there are a lot of issues that affect our health and our healthcare. And we can't tackle them all. We can't be all things to all people. So we thought that a podcast would be the perfect opportunity to take some of these issues, talk about them, and then maybe unpack them further with continued conversations on our website and social media platforms. So we decided to give it a go. So this is an outlet for DFC to indulge in getting our voice heard, but also an opportunity for us to hopefully provide some insight and education into not just who we are and what we do, but to talk about all of the issues that really impact us as individuals and communities and how we can improve health and healthcare in the United States. Thank you for sticking around to learn more about Doctors for Change, what we do, and why. Now we're gonna get into our first conversation. Today with us, we have Dr. Brian Reed. Dr. Reed is chair of the board of directors of Doctors for Change. 
He is a practicing family physician in Houston who is passionate about educating the next generation of healthcare providers to serve the underserved and recognize the social determinants of health. Dr. Reed has been part of the organization for many years, so we're going to hear from him about why it's an organization like DFC is important, why he chose to be involved, and to talk a little bit about some of the health issues that we're facing today. Thank you, Dr. Reed, and welcome to our first ever Doctors for Change podcast. I'd like to start with a few questions just in general about your engagement with DFC and why we exist from your perspective. So first I wanted to know, when did you first become involved with the organization and what is it that attracted you to us? So that's a really good question. Um, I've known about Doctors for Change for a long time. I believe Dr. Judy Levison was probably one of the first people that reached out to me about Doctors for Change while I was still working within Harris Health System. Um, So my role within Harris Health had been physician administrator, I've been a medical director, and at one point I was assistant chief of staff for ambulatory care services. And throughout that whole time, I've been interested in, you know, it's really sort of pushing and providing greater access for care. And that notion, I think that's really sort of where, you know, Doctors for Change kind of got started, was thinking about access for care and better access. But the job was so busy that I really didn't, have any extra time to kind of come and you know work with DFC and you know been impressed with the work that they were doing but I was always thinking that you know, access to care is part of my job so it wasn't until late 2016 that I actually you know, became a board member and started trying to advise uh, uh, the organization about um, you know future directions where things should go and um, I became much more involved later in 2017. Um, I'd been transitioning out of Harris Health System into Harris County Public Health and uh, got hammered with Hurricane Harvey and that you know, took a lot of time and energy. But once that passed, that's really when I was able to spend more time and get more engaged with Doctors for Change on a personal level. Excellent. What do you think sets DFC apart from other professional health organizations? So I've been practicing in the Houston area now for almost 20 years, and I've never really come across an organization like Doctors for Change. Most of the local professional organizations focus a lot on sort of policies to provide better funding or payment or reimbursement for practices. Um, I've seen you know, the state level organizations that you know, get kind of focused on sort of Medicaid and how it would affect you know, payments and reimbursements. In the national level, many of the organizations are focused upon similar things and I just don't see a whole lot of emphasis or had not seen as much emphasis on sort of social issues, things that we're seeing on a day-to-day basis that are affecting our patients beyond sort of payments and reimbursements. Many of us have worked within some safety net organizations. Many of the people that are part of Doctors for Change 
were trained at Baylor, trained at UT, spent time within Harris Health System, and really sort of see things that some of the professional societies aren't necessarily addressing when it comes to you know barriers to care, things that make it you know, really sort of hard for us to provide the best care for our patients. Having been working here for about 20 years, I would have hoped that I would have been worked out of a job in all honesty. I've been providing care for individuals that are, and I guess, considered medically underserved, many of whom are uninsured. And I would have thought that, you know, in a 10 year period of time or a 20 year period of time, that things would have improved for them to where, you know, I, I wouldn't, there really wouldn't need to be as much uh, emphasis on you know, some of these organizations, safety organizations, because you know, we would have done a better job in providing for them. Yeah. For, for those that might be unfamiliar, can you clarify what a safety net organization is? Yeah, so we're fortunate, at least those of us that live in Harris County, to have several places where people can go and be seen if they do not have insurance and if they are what we would consider to be lower income. Um, we don't have you know, as much Medicaid coverage here for the working poor here in the state of Texas. So, you know, we take care of our pregnant women. Oftentimes they can qualify for Medicaid if they're unemployed or uninsured. We take care of our children if they're in low-income families. But those adults that are working jobs that, you know, may not offer insurance here oftentimes do not qualify for Medicaid. So fortunately here in Harris County, we have uh, Harris Health System, which you know, provides uh, several community clinics, as well as Bentop General Hospital, as well as LBJ uh, General Hospital, and Quentin Meese Hospital. We have several federally qualified health centers here in town uh, that are offer slide and scale payments, uh, plans to individuals without insurance. Uh, some of these federal qualified health centers include uh, Vecino, El Centro de Corazon, Legacy, Lone Star Circle of Care, Hope Clinic, Spring Branch. Those are just a few of them. And um, we also have some charity clinics here in town. Many of them are faith-based to where you, know, you can uh, you know, go. They tend not to operate you know, five days a week. Most of them don't, uh, and you can go and be seen and evaluated by you know, a physician or nurse practitioner, and, and possibly even get prescriptions there if they have an on-site pharmacy. But even with all of these organizations here in town, it's still not enough because we have so many people that live here in town that you know, don't make enough to purchase health care insurance or don't get health care insurance provided from their job, and um, you know, really wouldn't have a place to go without these organizations. And we see that when you kind of get further away from Houston, if you just kind of get out to some of the counties north of us and counties south of us, there just aren't as many places to go if you don't have insurance and don't have the ability to pay out of pocket. And I think that is kind of where a lot of the frustrations for those of us in Doctors for Change kind of comes from, because even with us working in some of these safety net organizations, patients struggle to get prescriptions. So we come up with the treatment plan for the patient, but then they're not able to 
purchase, you know, the medication for their blood pressure, for their diabetes, for whatever infection that they have. So, you know, I've given medical advice, but the patient's not able to follow through. Or we want to, we have identified a problem, but we don't quite know what it is. So we need the patient to get some sort of diagnostic study and they can't afford it. Um, or if they need a surgery, I mean, we've got plenty of people walking around with uh, hernias and other medical problems that you know could be treated fairly easily with maybe an outpatient ambulatory surgery, but because of cost, they're not able to get that done. And then when you look around at other states where they have you know better coverage through Medicaid or different policies in place, you recognize it doesn't have to be this way. And, you know, you feel like you can do better. And I think that's, you know, where at least many of us are within Doctors for Change have, uh, you know, put a lot of our energy into you know, trying to find a better way to help our patients and help our communities. Um, we really talk about the unacceptable realities of healthcare amongst our members. You know, access to care is one, but we also have kind of branched out and grown from just you know, focusing on access to care because there are other issues that you know, walk through our clinic doors or walk into our hospitals that you know, really could be addressed better. Uh, we try to address some of the blind spots that aren't covered or addressed in some of our medical education or are addressed in you know, some resident education. Um, you know, we, you know, I graduated from medical school more than 20 years ago. We, we didn't talk about human trafficking. Uh, we didn't really discuss much about the, the nuances and ways in which you, you know, need to address an immigrant population to provide better care. And we didn't get any sort of training at all and how to provide better care for individuals uh, from the LGBTQ plus community. So there's a lot of energy within Doctors for Change to address those sort of areas where we're holes in our education so that our uh, you know, medical staff can do much better by the citizens that live here in the community. Well, excellent summary. So, you know, again, for people that don't quite understand, why is health and access to good health care and quality health care such an important issue in terms of our community and in, in our city and just in, in general in the state? So, you know, I think when you start at the why, most of us are in healthcare, whether it be a nurse, administrator, uh, physician, most of us are really trying to help our community do well and thrive. And access to care is just one small part of that. Um, it's not, you know, everything. I mean, there's other things such as, you know, healthy eating and living, access to, you know, you know, exercise, access to healthy foods, not smoking, not drinking. But I, I think the access to care issue stands out for us because it's something that um, you can make a huge change with just a sort of shift in policy. We've seen that in the states that sort of border Texas that expanded Medicaid. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's 
sort of simple things that make it a little bit easier for patients to get their medications or get to a doctor's appointment, I think helps keep our society uh, you know, functioning and doing well. I was a part of a research project many years ago called the Demonstration to Maintain Independence and Employment uh, Project. It was one in which we provided a little bit of enhanced services to some of our uninsured patients that were in the pro program, just to see whether or not giving them just a little bit of help could prevent them from going on disability. So it wasn't necessarily a handout, it was a hand up. And I mean, it was things that, you know, simple things like better glasses, different uh, shoes maybe with orthotics that could help support you know, the feet or help them with their gait. Um, I mean, we all know that you can make more money working than getting a disability check. And that, that, that working helps I think, sort of with our own self-esteem and identity mm -hmm. and then you know, more revenue and income actually helps with you know, really sort of supporting the household. And you know, I think leaving some of the stress too. And you know what we see in sort of working in these safety net organizations are, you know, if only that patient was able to get this, you know, they would be able to you know probably have a more fulfilled life or be able to be in a much better situation. You know, I see patients that have you know abdominal hernias and you know they're not necessarily able to work as well is they you know would have if they had it repaired. I see those that have you know, significant problems with their vision, maybe because of uncontrolled diabetes or high blood pressure. If we were able to get the blood sugar under control and get them to an eye doctor, you know they'd be much better in, in their job. But if you know the trajectory continues, we see that as well where we're not able to intervene, they wind up you know losing their sight and going on disability or losing their kidney function. I mean, I've seen people as young as the late 30s or 40s that had high blood pressure and diabetes and you know, wind up on dialysis and now they're on Medicaid and disability, whereas we could have you know, prevented all of that. And so you know, I think that's why we get so much attention to that because we see these failures in providing care earlier so often in our profession. And before COVID, you know, our ICUs were filled with Failures of primary care, failures of, to intervene earlier, and you know it's, it's tragic when we lose lives or lose you know you know people have these um, you know less than satisfying uh, you know, conditions that could have been prevented. So I think that that's really at the heart of you know, why we are so concerned about having good health and good access to healthcare in our communities. That that's a great summary. Um, I think now what we'll do is, is transition the conversation a little bit more, go into depth about health and health care. So you already mentioned COVID, and we can't have a conversation about health without acknowledging that we're in the midst of a pandemic. Our intent with our podcast is that we will address COVID-19 and all that that entails in the next few episodes. But I'd like to ask um, a couple of questions about how your practice has changed as it relates to covid because life has changed for everyone. And so what changes have you made? What changes are you seeing in a clinical setting um, that do affect 
some of these vulnerable populations and people that, that should be seeking out care and may not be at this particular point in time? Yes, so this is a really interesting situation because you know, when people think about maybe infectious diseases, oftentimes they're thinking, okay, this is a healthcare problem. But in this situation, healthcare is not necessarily going to get us out of the situation. This is really a public health problem, and this is an environmental health problem in the sense that, you know, there are some communities in the world where they really don't have any COVID-19 anymore. So people yes. are out walking around with masks, without masks, uh, enjoying, uh, uh, you know, life as it was pre-COVID. So, you know, for us, the clinic situation has really been interesting because we've had significant decreases in terms of patient volumes during uh, the earlier parts of the pandemic. And, um, you know, people were afraid to leave their homes. People were afraid to come to doctor's offices. People were afraid to go to hospitals because, you know, that's where sick people are. I'd probably catch something if I go over there. So, you know, and I can understand the logic. As this sort of pandemic has gone on and we're approaching, you know, almost a year that we've been dealing with this here in the Houston area, um, our clinic has changed in such a way that, you know, we're all wearing masks in the clinic at all times. Uh, we've sort of revised our schedule to where we have sick visits in the afternoon and well visits in the morning, so we're trying to avoid mixing the population. We're testing uh, individuals, uh, but we're trying to do as much of the history as possible before the patient even comes in, uh, quickly collect the specimen and then send you know anyone that's suspicious or under investigation for you know, COVID back away from others and we're doing a lot of messaging too just about you know, a lot of public health messaging trying to be consistent in our message to our patients about good hand hygiene social distancing wearing a mask when out in public but you know one of the things that we've done is, is been some innovation around telemedicine and of course telemedicine has been around for a while but um you know, this uh, pandemic really sort of pushed us to implement uh, telemedicine pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, with our behavioral health team has been doing counseling via uh, telehealth uh, really since probably March or April of uh, 2020. Uh, they don't have as many in-person visits. Um, and then myself as a primary care physician, I kind of have a hybrid, um, so I'm doing some telemedicine visits uh, each clinic session. Some of the patients I'm seeing are local. Some are actually as far away as the Austin Round Rocket area because most of our circle of care uh, where I work at the campus of the University of Houston has several offices in Austin, Central Texas. So. There's problems with access in that area. Sometimes those patients will wind up on our schedules here in Houston. And I mean, honestly, I think that's, I think it's really neat, in all honesty, that I'm able to uh, provide care for individuals um, that are, are, you know, far away. And even from a personal standpoint, um, COVID entered our household and I had to quarantine for a while, but I was able to continue patient care responsibilities working remotely telemedicine. So I think those things are, you know, here to set, here to stay. And 
you know, that does help reach you know, distant populations and I think it is going to be part of our, um, you know, solution to access to care problems. Um, we already kind of knew that. I mean, some of the prison population and jails have been using telemedicine. Some of the rural populations have been using it, but not at the level that we're seeing now. And telemedicine, to clarify, is over video chat or telephone or a combination of both? So, certainly a little bit of both, but what I'm referring to is actually video chat. So, um, you know, similar to like FaceTiming on a phone. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm able to. You see the patient, the patient's able to see me. And you can do some components of a physical exam. Uh, of course, you can't listen to heart and lungs uh, remotely. They, are, they do sometimes have some assistive devices if, you're, if the patient's in a clinic to where you can do that. But I'm just, I'm able to at least see the person, see if they're having any sort of respiratory distress or see some of their facial expressions in response to, you know, some discussion and dialogue. Uh, if they're coughing a lot, I can see that, you know, they're running nose. And, you know, if they get close enough to the camera, I can actually see, you know, the issues they have with the skin or some, I've seen the throat, you know, examined it, you know, someone that might, thought they might have strep throat, you know, read the camera. So, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's something that I really didn't think too much about uh, prior to the pandemic, but, you know, mm-hmm. now I, I don't see going back to a situation where I don't have, you know, telemedicine as part of my practice. Great. From a patient perspective, they probably also appreciate they don't have to wear paper gowns. Yeah. <laughs> so you already touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think it's incredibly important that we talk about this again. Why preventative health care is so important. And you, you mentioned that people aren't were coming in earlier in the pandemic because of COVID. But what advice do you give to people who really haven't been keeping up with their regular doctor visits? Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's concerning because many of the conditions that we have are much more manageable if we detect them early and intervene early. And when we don't have these preventative visits, that's where things get missed. Uh, we've seen changes over the last 20 to 30 years in screening recommendations for you know, various cancers. We've seen changes in the way we diagnose high blood pressure as well as uh, diabetes. We've become a little bit stricter in terms of, you know, we used to allow blood pressure of like 140 over 90, now we're saying it's 120 over 80 because we know that individuals that stay at that lower blood pressure areas have lower risk of heart disease, lower risk of kidney things. So we're picking up things earlier and able to offer that medical advice and inform individuals that, hey, now is the time to start to change your behaviors so that you avoid these sort of complications. We're seeing you know, earlier recommendations for things like colon cancer because you know, we've seen you know, you know, pretty, some pretty high profile cases of individuals in their 40s that mm-hmm. have unfortunately uh, succumbed to colon cancer. And, and unfortunately, during this pandemic, many of us in the healthcare community are very concerned that you know, people aren't coming in for routine sort of you know, cancer screenings. Uh, children are likely missing uh, their immunizations and missing out on you know, individuals that uh, may have 
high blood pressure, prediabetes, diabetes, and other uh, disorders um, that you know, could have been addressed or could, could be addressed much earlier. The concern is that you know, once things, once our attention subsides from COVID-19, we're going to you know, find you know, some other ugly things <laughs> in the closet once we turn the light on, you know, that we missed in the you know, 2020 and 2021 that we weren't, weren't addressing. So mm-hmm. that, that's, that's a concern. So I'm going to veer off topic just a little bit um, to t- go back to, you mentioned the preventative care is important and the importance of changing behaviors. What sort of services and role would an organization like DFC play or does a physician like yourself play in terms of helping someone change their behaviors, for example, if they are living in a community where they don't necessarily have access to fresh produce or spaces where they can regularly exercise, uh, you know, things, you know, or even um, access perhaps to a smoking cessation program? So, it's another good question. I mean, we have a committee dedicated to healthy eating and active living. And I think the first thing is really sort of education. Um, it's sort of stunning at times when you sit down and talk to some of your patients, really sort of talk to them about some of their habits. And depending upon the community that they're in and what sort of norms are in that community, they may not even be aware that they shouldn't be eating this way or that you know, this much cigarette smoking is not that good because everyone around them does that or this weight that they're carrying is not healthy for them because everyone in that area, you know, looks the same and does the same things. They you know, eat the same sort of foods and don't exercise and things like that. So an organization like ours can, you know, reach out and partner with other organizations that are sort of already embedded in those communities to launch some education initiatives, get some sort of engagement, and then also connect with other more service-oriented organizations like the Houston Bank to kind of help bring in, um, you know, healthier food choices and items when there's issues around food insecurity, so that they know, you know, if we have this food distribution, you know, these are the types of foods that you know would be helpful for me, and my family. So that's that's sort of where we we come in on those uh, issues. Now. Excellent. And um, for anybody listening, we'll have a list of different service organizations on our website as well. So you can take a look once you sign off the podcast. So just, you know, in, in wrapping things up a little bit, are there any other tips that you would recommend for staying healthy as we all get to the point where we can have some sort of semblance of pre-COVID life? Um, and for the pandemic to get under control, what, what things would you say to, would you recommend to your patients and then to the community at large? Um, I just recommend that we continue with the same sort of precautions that we've been taking, which is you know, avoiding the large gatherings or crowds, um, continuing to social distance or limit your exposure to individuals that aren't necessarily in your your family pod and continuing to use facial coverings or masks when out in public and good hand hygiene 
and then get the vaccine as soon as possible. We're starting to see mutations of this virus, so the, you know, so the longer that it's circulating and infecting individuals, the um, risk of risk of uh, adverse problems associated with these mutations kind of goes up. So you know, the sooner that we all get vaccinated, and this, the amount of spread decreases, the better it will be for all of us. Well, thank you for that great advice. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say in closing before we sign off? So, you know, again, just kind of going back to sort of why Doctors for Change um, and, you know, the work that we do. I have to say that I'm proud of what we've done throughout the pandemic. Um, we've had to also kind of change to a more virtual format. I, I do miss the large gatherings that we have within Doctors for Change. We may, with such an amount of energy in the room, we have these forums where you get together, you know, physicians, nurses, lawyers, uh, payers, uh, concerned citizens to talk about uh, health care reform, talk about better care of uh, immigrants, to talk about better care for people that have been incarcerated, better care for individuals from the LGBTQ plus community. I mean, there's just such energy and synergy when we all kind of get together and share our ideas and really sort of talk about problems and try to work on solutions. So we've continued to have forums throughout the uh, pandemic. They've gone to a virtual format. Not quite as energetic because, you know, we're looking at, you know, the screens and everything. Uh, but I think we've had a lot of quality content, um, which uh, we've had local experts uh, discussing local problems. So we're not talking about you know, problems with access or problems that are affecting other communities, you know, other states. We're talking about things that are right down the street. So we're talking about problems that are affecting our families, our neighbors, our friends, in our colleagues. So, you know, that that's, I think, you know, sort of the why DFC, uh, because there's still a lot of work to be done, even in the midst of the pandemic. And I'm, I'm proud that we've been able to carry on and, uh, you know, continue to sort of close those holes or gaps in education and maintain some energy and focus on advocating for change and making things better. Well, excellent. I know we're all looking forward to a day when we can get around, you know, gather in a room as a group and capitalize on that energy again. And I'm going to take this opportunity to shamelessly plug our website, www.doctorsforchange.org, where we'll continue our conversation from today and have a lot of other information about some potential advocacy work and hopefully uh, also engage additional volunteers and people interested in, in what we're doing in Houston and in Texas. So thank you, Dr. Reed, for your time today. You're very welcome.
So, Dr. Reed, um, when did you first become involved in DFC and, and why? That's a great question. So, I first became involved in DFC, I want to say back in late 2016. I had known about DFC for a long time. Dr. Judy Levison and I had worked together within what used to be known as the Harris County Hospital District and now it's known as Harris Health System. Dr. Levison had been involved with DFC many earlier days and had already been on the board. She had been asking me about joining for some time. For those that don't know, Dr. Levison is an obstetrician gynecologist who has dedicated her career to helping uh, HIV-infected women. And we work together at the Northwest uh, Community Health Center. She's done all kinds of global work. And she's someone I admire a great deal. And she was telling me about all the work that DFC had been doing to improve access to care. At the time in which I became a board member, I had been working within Harris Health System and had been um, one of the assistant chiefs of staff. So access to care was my day job. So when I finally actually you know, followed through on the multiple pokes and prods from Dr. Levison to you know, really sort of get engaged with, Dr. Le- with doctors for change, I was very impressed with what I saw. I came to one of the Monday meetings and saw that you know, we had this group of energetic students, residents, and uh, faculty that are you know, all working to address some of the unacceptable realities that we see in the healthcare system every day. Um, many of the individuals were colleagues that did similar work to what I was doing within Harris Health, but in other institutions. So there were doctors from Texas Children's, doctors at UT McGovern, other doctors in other areas of Baylor that were all really interested in improving healthcare for our neighbors, friends, family, and the patients that we see every day. I was really inspired by some of the advocacy work that I was seeing from uh, Dr. Claire Bikini and uh, uh, Dr. Wilson Lamb, and uh, it was aware that they had been doing some policy briefs, but I didn't know kind of the depth of their knowledge and the depth of engagement that they had and all the hill visits that were going on sort of pre-pandemic going to Austin in groups to at least help guide some of our legislators on some policy positions that would impact the health and well-being of the communities that we serve. Um, so, you know, that's sort of the why in the DFC, it's, it's, it, it's the, you know, collective effort of the group, the, uh, residents, the faculty, and, uh, the energy that I saw in the room when I was there. Mm-hmm. So really it's people getting involved in health and healthcare because they want to make a difference. And, and make change, as opposed to, you know, I'm going into this profession because I get to call myself doctor and, and become an important person in the world. Yeah, it's, that's, that's exactly it. It, it it's, it's the sort of everyday heroes, mm-hmm. 
taking care of individuals who in some situations wouldn't have any other place to go. And then trying to find a better way to advocate and support them outside of that one-on-one doctor-patient encounter when you're in the exam room. You know, what more can I do to help not just this one individual in front of me, but the hundreds or thousands of individuals that didn't actually get through our office or our clinic door because of whatever barriers they may face. That, that's what I see Doctors for Change seeking to address or has been addressing mm-hmm. throughout its inception. And it's really inspiring. I mean, they've had some slow but steady successes in improving uh, the lives of others. And it's really an all-volunteer organization. I mean, everybody has sort of a busy day job, but these individuals are so passionate and committed to improving the health and well-being of their local community that you know they're willing to give up evenings, they're willing to give up weekends, or even take days off of work to go to you know the capital or go meet with some local officials to and try to inform and advise about a better way to deliver health care. Yes, it is truly inspiring, and we will be hearing from more of our amazing volunteers throughout the course of our podcast series. So thank you.